Okay, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Grace and peace to you. Our scripture this morning opens with a ruler coming to question Jesus. The Gospel of Mark tells us that he ran to Jesus and he knelt before him. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us that he was a young man. He's not like the lawyer whom we've already encountered in chapter 10, who stood up and questioned Jesus to put him to the test, but rather the ruler comes sincerely. Now given his title, ruler, and that he was extremely rich, he was likely a leading man in society, respected among others. And now he comes and bows before Jesus in homage and says... Verse 18, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So the ruler asks his question in sincerity. There's no ulterior motive here. And he receives a sincere answer from Jesus. Jesus is not toying with the ruler, nor preaching the law as preparation for the gospel. That's sometimes how this passage is interpreted. Jesus is setting him up, so to speak, telling them that he needs to obey the commandments to have eternal life. But in truth, Jesus does not want the ruler to obey. He's driving him to despair so that once he reaches that point, he can spring the gospel on him. You don't have to do anything to inherit eternal life. Instead, believe in me, and that's all that is needed. But that's not what Jesus does in this passage. And to interpret the passage in that manner inverts its lesson, what it's trying to tell us almost entirely. On the contrary... Jesus strengthens the ruler's assumptions about eternal life. You know the commandments, he says. Jesus reaffirms the necessity of obedience to the law, and he does so sincerely. Now he quotes from the second table of the commandments, which obviously have to do with our relations toward others. No adultery, no murder, no theft, no lying, and honor to parents. Jesus is saying that no one can enter life who persistently and, more importantly, unrepentantly violates these commandments. Now, the New Testament makes the same point in various places. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 catalogs, rather, the works of the flesh, and he says, verse 21, Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And again, Ephesians 5, chapter 5, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Put simply, obedience is necessary to enter the kingdom, to inherit eternal life. Such is what Jesus teaches. But what am I saying? That 
we are saved by our works, that we are not, in fact, saved by faith? Well, that couldn't be further from the truth, because the same apostle who wrote Ephesians 5.5, establishing the necessity of obedience, also wrote Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So the passage does not undermine the central truth that salvation is a gift received through faith. Again, as was so vividly demonstrated last week, God have mercy on me, the sinner. Jesus asks, who went home justified? The Pharisee or the tax collector? It was the tax collector. However, the passage does take aim against an understanding of faith that undermines works. Or, to put it another way, an understanding of faith as mere belief. The passage takes aim against an understanding of faith as mere belief. Faith is not simply intellectual consent, signing our names at the bottom of a set of doctrines and facts. Yes, faith includes that, but it's more than that. It's more than that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Discipleship, put it this way. Because we are justified by faith, faith and obedience have to be distinguished. But their division must never destroy their unity, which lies in the reality that faith exists only in obedience, is never without obedience. Faith is only faith in deeds of obedience. In other words, mere belief stops short of obedience. Mere belief does not carry out the call to discipleship. But faith, it is only faith in deeds of obedience. They're distinguished, but inseparable. And that's the thrust of the passage. Do not simply believe, but follow. Follow Jesus Christ. Our obedience matters not as the thing that ultimately saves us, but as the only real verification that our faith is true. We are not saved by our works, but we are not saved without them. We're not saved by our works, but we're not saved without them. I suppose then the question that this passage prompts us to ask ourselves is, Am I obeying? Am I displaying the righteousness proper to genuine faith, or do I simply believe? And so the lesson is to get on with obedience and good works to show oneself approved. Because to follow Jesus Christ is not an amorphous concept devoid of anything real. Just believe. Say the sinner's prayer. It means to do as Jesus did. That's the definition and the content of faith, to abound in works of love and mercy. As the Apostle James says, I will show you my faith by works. By my works. And so what does our life show us? A heart bursting with faith that leads to obedience? Or a heart lulled into idleness by mere belief. 
Now, the solution is not to agonize over where your heart is, faith or belief. The solution is to get busy carrying out the commandments in obedience. Psalm 119, verse 59 and 60. I considered my ways. I took stock of my life. And I turned my feet to your testimonies. I was going this way. And I changed my path. I'm going this way now. I hastened and I did not delay to keep your commandments. So our feet have been pointed to other things. Let us turn them toward the commandments. Our feet have been slow along the way. Let us hasten toward obedience. For, as Jesus says, in obedience, only in obedience, is their life. The two belong together. So in response to Jesus' answer, the ruler says, I have kept all these things from my youth. Now there might be a hint of the proud Pharisee in his answer. You remember him last week. I thank you, God, that I am not like these other people. But we cannot say for sure. As far as things go, we have no reason to doubt the sincerity of his response. It is possible to keep the commandments understood externally. He was not a murderer. He was not an adulterer, a thief, or a liar. And he honored his father and mother. We have to give him that because Jesus did. However, he says, verse 22, When Jesus heard this, he said to them, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor. And, when you shall have, and then you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So, Jesus' response ought to be read against the backdrop of the commandments that he excludes. As we stated, he quotes from the second table of the Ten Commandments, but he omits the Tenth Commandment. Thou shall not covet. Jesus knows what's in the ruler's heart. He knows where he stands relative to the commandments. The command that Jesus referenced are, again, taken at face value, external. They involve outward and concrete action. But the tenth commandment, the one that Jesus omits from his original statement... The Tenth Commandment takes an inward turn. It deals with desire and longing, the inmost recesses of the human heart. So in a merely external sense, the ruler is righteous. He's refrained from these certain sinful actions, and for that he's to be commended. That's a good thing. But in an inward sense... Right, understood according to what goes on in the heart, there's a different story to be told about this ruler. Now, Jesus knows this. He knows what's in man, and he does not need anyone to tell him. And so, he points it out. He says, one thing you still lack. His obedience was incomplete or imperfect, as the Gospel of Matthew says. And what was the issue? Well, he was a covetous man. His heart, though his actions were right, his heart was set on his possessions being extremely rich. 
The problem, however, for the ruler was not mere covetousness. It was worship. It's ultimately about worship. In his letter to the Colossians, the apostle says in chapter 3, verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That deep, sometimes uncontrollable desire to have something, a person, a possession, a reputation, whatever, is idolatry, the scripture says, tantamount to serving another god. In this way, the tenth commandment, not to covet, and the first commandment, not to have other gods, complement one another. They, are, they virtually command the same thing. Another God is anything we excessively hunger after, that our hearts grasp for, that our hearts yearn for, and ultimately can't live without. For the ruler, his possessions, his fortune and wealth, and everything that he had, had become his God. Thus, where he is lacking where he is not completing his obedience, Jesus commands him to make it up. He tells him very concretely, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. Mammon would be dethroned in his heart through obedience. Again, as Jesus says elsewhere, where your heart is, or rather where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So by redirecting his treasure, namely selling it and ridding himself of his false god, he would redirect his heart. But that's only one side of the coin. Jesus says, on the one hand, sell all that you possess and distribute to the poor. And he adds on the other, come and follow me. Obedience to the 10th commandment looks like radical generosity, selling his possessions, not merely not coveting, but selling them, getting rid of them, and obedience to the first commandment looks like radical commitment to Jesus. Have no other gods is tantamount to the call to discipleship. Come and follow me. So the obedience that Jesus requires is more than abstaining from evil. It's about engaging in good deeds. It's not merely that we tolerate our enemies, but that we love them and pray for them. It's not merely that we do these particular things, but that we're engrossed in the best things. It's not merely that we avoid litigation, Matthew chapter 5, but instead that we make friends along the way. Instead of merely negative, don't do this, it's now about The positive. So the ruler is content not to have stolen. Jesus wants him to give his possessions to the poor. He's content to refrain from murder. Jesus wants him to become an agent of reconciliation. He may have kept all these things from his youth, but Jesus commands him to leave all and follow him, which is the absolute bottom line of obtaining eternal life. But notice what Jesus does here. 
how he, well, you'll see. Notice what Jesus does here. The ruler asks, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Right? He wants to know how to obtain salvation, life in the age to come. And Jesus responds to him, right, curiously, strangely, why do you call me good? Some people use this to say that Jesus was sinful or that he, in fact, is not God. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It seems the ruler, in coming to this new rabbi, Jesus, he expects something of a fresh answer, an unconventional answer. Jesus, however, deflects attention away from himself. He refuses even to accept that designation, good teacher. He says, there's one who's good, and that's God alone. And thus, God alone can define the terms of eternal life. So, the ruler wanted some new answer. Jesus redirects him to the old conventional answer. He says, obey the commandments. Obey the commandments and you'll have eternal life. But then, in their exchange, Jesus redefines the commandments around himself. He tells himself, all that you possess, turn from your idols, and render true worship in obedience to the first and greatest commandment by following me. By following me. So the ruler, he seeks an answer about how he can obtain eternal life, and Jesus tells him that he is the answer. Jesus Christ, in following him, is eternal life. Eternal life is not found in obeying the commandments abstractly, not doing this or that, but by following Jesus in faith and obedience. Eternal life is something that's given to us in discipleship, in faith. And the ruler then, he's brought to this precipice. He's brought to this moment of decision of faith and obedience. And right there at the very end, he he turns away. Verse 23 But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So the ruler was deceived. He asked about eternal life, but proved himself to be completely bound to the enjoyment of this present life. If eternal life is truly what he desired, would this not be an easy and light way to receive it? Get rid of that which hinders you from following me, and come, join me. But his possessions are now more a part of him than the members of his own body, and separation from them is as painful as the amputation of one of his limbs. Basil the Great says, You are not disappointed when you must spend gold in order to purchase a horse. But when you have the opportunity to exchange corruptible things for the kingdom of heaven, you shed tears, spurning the one who asks you and refusing to give anything while contriving a million excuses for your own expenditures. So to the ruler, Jesus responds, verse 24, and Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, 
then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. So how hard it is, how hard is it, rather, for the rich to enter the kingdom? Humanly impossible, Jesus says. It's, easy, it's easier for a camel, the largest animal that a Hebrew person would have known. It's easier for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle, the smallest aperture that an ancient person would have known, than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Riches, we like to think, are something that make life easier. We can obtain whatever we want. We can do whatever is before us. But they make the most important thing harder. And why do riches make entry into the kingdom well-nigh impossible? Because they present, unlike anything else, an opportunity to trust in them rather than in God. In earthly terms, riches are omnipotent. They can accomplish and secure whatever one needs and wants. And if that's the case, then what use is God? Why ought I to trust Him when I have all this before me? As we've already seen, Luke sixteen thirteen, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth something the ruler is coming to understand. Now, whatever the point here, Jesus means to warn us about the dangers inherent in riches. He is not merely rebuking a wealthy man for his lack of spiritual commitment, but he's saying something very disturbing about wealth as such. Now, there have been debates about the extent to which Jesus' words apply. Is the command to sell possessions and distribute to the poor a universal command, or is it only for the rich young ruler? Now, the commandment obviously does not apply to everyone in the same manner. There is no blanket statement that that's required from us in the scriptures, but that doesn't let us off the hook. Jesus' words still apply to our lives. Now, some have taken these words literally as God's will for them, and sold all their possessions and distributed them to the poor. And I think it would be wrong to exclude ourselves from that possibility. If Jesus commanded the rich young ruler to do so, and and a real command, he's not bluffing, why not us? Why wouldn't Jesus ask the same sort of severe commitment to him? But though not all of us are called to sell our possessions and give to the poor, we are, and this is where the passage applies, called to use our possessions to the benefit of the poor. His possessions, the rulers, had become his God because he hoarded them. He wasn't using them for the kingdom of God, but himself. So that, at the end of the day, is the only way to defend ourselves against the power of mammon in our hearts and lives. The only antidote to covetousness, which is idolatry, is to share. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and 19, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, 
but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So riches and possessions are yanked from their position as the center of our hope when we become rich in good works. Our excess, the scripture teaches, ought to be aimed primarily toward generosity and sharing, helping those in need and providing for those who lack. And of course, when all accounts are balanced, and read the previous where are we, 18? Read the previous eight chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Look how much Jesus talks about money, how much he talks about the poor, about helping them, sharing them, and the dangers of keeping that wealth to ourselves. And he says what you're supposed to do is sell it, give it to them, uh, be generous, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And so when all the accounts are balanced, that is the best and most frugal use of money there is. Because as Jesus said to the ruler, As Paul here says to us, in so doing, we store up for ourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Earthly riches are given back to us as heavenly riches when they are distributed according to God's will. But the very thing that the ruler failed to do separate himself from the desire of his covetousness, the disciples did do, right? The disciples left all to follow Jesus. And that's why the interpretation of Jesus is bluffing and he wants to bring him to despair doesn't work because it's invalidated by what Peter says. Recognizing this, Peter said, verse 28, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. So where this com- uh, comment rather comes from in Peter's heart is hard to say. Was he anxious that his sacrifice, leaving everything to follow Jesus, would turn up empty? We've left everything. What's there going to be for us? Or was he confident? We've left everything and so wanted to know what awaited him. Or was it something else? Now, whether Jesus' answer was to still Peter's anxiety or to indulge his confidence, the effect is to show that in obedience to the call of Christ... Leave everything and follow me. There is great reward. In the end, what we receive back from the hand of Christ is far more, far more than what we let go. However, there is always a letting go. There is always a leaving behind. Jesus comes to the disciples settled into their lives. Cemented into their careers, their families, and everything else. And he calls them, the same words he gave to the ruler, follow me. He calls them to follow him, to uproot themselves, essentially, and to go where he goes. 
to do what he does, to not define their lives by what they want to, what they would like, but to define their lives solely around Jesus. Follow me. And now why for the disciples that location, that dislocation was a physical one? For us it's often a spiritual one. That word comes to us on a more existential level. There is a relational price, a professional price, a personal price that is required from us as Christians. Now, it used to be that Christianity was a good thing in our society. Right? It was widely regarded. Um, everybody essentially was a Christian. It quickly became a neutral thing. It was neither good nor bad. It's just mere Christian. And now it's a negative thing. The moral consensus has decisively shifted away from the church's ethical convictions. And in some cases, not just away, but against them. So that's actually a, a negative, bad thing to be a Christian in many circumstances. And what that means is, essentially, things are going to get harder for us. Now, that's not the end of the world, right? We don't need to go crying persecution. Uh, we don't need to look somewhere else to be saved. But we do need to recognize and adjust to the situation. Things are going to get a little bit harder. It was more comfortable before in the workplace and at school, among family and friends, and in our personal lives. Now, for the most part, it will remain comfortable. We live in Los Lunas, not New York, but it won't be as comfortable. There will be friction in various areas, mainly ethical ones. And in order to follow Jesus, more will be asked from us. And the point is, we need to be prepared, be prepared rather, to sacrifice for the sake of following Jesus Christ. We need to be prepared for what might be asked of us. And certainly those would be severe losses, and we don't want to minimize that. How hard it would have been for the disciples to leave everything behind, to abandon all that they had worked their lives for to follow Jesus now. There is a loss there. But what are such losses compared to inheriting eternal life? The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, Jesus says. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he, he went, listen, and sold all that he had and bought it. And so in the call to discipleship, Jesus summons us to trust his promise. That he will give back far more than what he asks from us. That the gift of eternal life outweighs every temporal thing and is worth the sacrifice. Not merely the ones that are imposed upon us, but the ones that we know we need to take in our lives as they stand now. That it's worth it. But really, that's to get too far ahead, because before Jesus comes to eternal life, he alludes to compensation and reward in this earthly life. There is no one, he says, who will not receive many times as much at this time, who will not receive many times as much at this time. So it's widely recognized that Jesus' statement at this time is an allusion to the church. 
It's an allusion to the body of believers. What we lose in our old lives, be it family, our friends, or both, and now we all know brothers and sisters who have had to pay that price, what we lose there in relational capital, in affection and love and all the great things that come with those, is given back to us in the community of believers. Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, And his mother and brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd, and it was reported to him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And so when I hear Jesus' promise many times as much in this life, that, that we're not just being asked to make sacrifice by sheer power of will, but that what we leave behind in the world, we, we gain many times as much among each other in, in this community. When I think of that, I... Let me say two things. Well, I think of one, the heroic story of Wesley Hill, but one, I think about how much faith needs to be exercised there. That this community always doesn't feel like that, like what we give up is made up in the body of brothers and sisters. But that leads me to the story of of Wesley Hill. Because he was one, I think, who believed in that promise and acted on it. Now, Wesley Hill was a gay man struggling between the two paths before. Now, he knew that if he chose to follow Christ, he would have to live a celibate life, that he wouldn't get to live the homosexual lifestyle. So there was that option. The other was not follow Christ and do what he wanted to do. So he chose to follow Christ. He went through seminary. He interned at various churches. And all the while, the loneliness and lack of companion companionship hounded him. Right? Everyone's getting married. Everyone's having their lives, and he was alone, and it was really hard for him. He recounts his details. And many times, in moments of weakness, he contemplated leaving the church and walking away because, one, he didn't find very much understanding, and one, he was alone. Until, he says, and this is the turning point in his story, he came to terms with this promise many times as much at this time. At this time. So what he thought was an either-or option, give up human companionship in a same-sex marriage to serve Jesus, but nevertheless live a life lonely and isolated, it was a terrible ultimatum, ultimatum for him. But one, he realized that Jesus wasn't holding him to. What he was giving up in a gay lifestyle, namely the fellowship and affection of marriage, he says, was given back to him in the church. One of the most surprising discoveries I made, he says, is that the New Testament views the church rather than marriage as the primary place where human love is best expressed and experienced. Of course, if you read 1 Corinthians 15, or the 1 Corinthians in general, that passage in 1 Corinthians 7, there's no mention of love when he talks about marriage. Where does love come in? We read it at all the wedding ceremonies. Where does love come in? He's talking about the church. And he realized what he was giving up, and he thought that was his only avenue for affection and anything. He says, I realized that God's plan is that I would receive many times as much 
in this time with new fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters in the church. And that enabled him to leave everything behind to make that decisive turn and to follow Christ. So he writes, The remedy for loneliness, if there is such a thing on this side of God's future, is to learn over and over again to do this, to feel God's keeping presence embodied in the human members of the community of faith, the church. So he believed the promise, and he acted. God made up to him among his brothers and sisters what he gave up in the world. So the point is, right, of that whole story, of the passage, is that if we're to make those type of sacrifices that are expected of us, we must be the type of community where each one can receive back many times as much in this life. If we're going to raise the bar and say, there are certain things that are out of bounds, you can't live that life and be a Christian, then they have to be able to come to the church and find what they were looking for elsewhere, in righteousness and in holiness. If family relationships are to be disrupted by our allegiance to Jesus, those relationships must be made up in the church, in spiritual fathers and mothers, in spiritual brothers and sisters. If home becomes a place that's no longer hospitable, the church is to become that home, where each person is welcome and valued. If earthly friendships and kindness are sacrificed, they are to be recompensed with spiritual friendships and kindness. There has to be that within the church. So we answer Jesus' call as lone individuals. He looks at us and says, you come follow me. But in following him, we're incorporated into this community of discipleship. I'm baptized as a lone individual, but I am baptized into the body of Christ. And that body of Christ is one. He gives back to us many times as much in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. Cyril of Jerusalem says, If a man has left his home, he shall receive an abiding place above. If his father, he shall have a father in heaven. If he has forsaken his kindred, Christ shall take him for a brother. If he has given up a wife, he shall find a divine wisdom from which he shall beget spiritual offspring. If a mother, he shall find the heavenly Jerusalem, which is our mother. From brethren and sisters already united together with him by the spiritual bond of his will, he shall receive, even in this life, far more kindly affections. So, Now, as we prepare ourselves to receive communion, as the music plays, let's just consider what these elements communicate. Eternal life purchased for us in the body and blood of Jesus. That's what the bread and the cup signify. But more importantly, that Jesus himself is the pearl of great price. Jesus himself is eternal life. And in communion, we share his life-giving presence now, but in the kingdom, we'll share it not through elements, but in reality, unmediated. So I want to just invite you uh, in this time to take time to pray sincerely, to confess if need be, uh, to ask for forgiveness, and most importantly, to give thanks. Do that now and I'll lead us in prayer in just a moment.